Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. The Edmonton Catholic School Board does not want him to speak on talk radio. Ezra Levant warned us about putting him on this podcast. But activist and blogger Bashir Mohammed, joining us from Edmonton, hello. Hey, thanks for having me on. Bashir, on today's show, Trump... Calls him two-faced. Everybody here knows him better in brown face. We're going to talk about what's his face. We're going to talk about the turmoil and trouble of one Bashir Muhammad. That's you. We got a good source on this one. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to talk about the Globe and Mail's all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet. Want some excoriating condemnation? They've got it. Want some bootlicking capitulation? They've got that too. What a rich diversity of opinions. Good to have you with us. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. This episode is brought to everybody by James Allenspock, Brad, Jim Struthers, Jamie Morrison, Gary Raisinen, Adam Deutsch, Lisa D'Agostino, and Vicky. Hi, my name is Vicky, and I support Canada Land because we don't seem to have much left of our so-called democracy, but a free, 
press supported by the people is something that I am not prepared to lose. I like to get all perspectives as a bit of a news junkie and Canada Land is one of those perspectives I particularly enjoy. So keep it up, Jesse and team. Bashir, by now you've probably heard this. Uh, it has uh, got everyone talking. What was said between world leaders yeah. over drinks at Buckingham Palace? The summit so far marked by some tension interactions, including a few with French President Emmanuel Macron are adding to that tension. This new video that surfaced last night showing several of those same leaders seeming to gossip about President Trump. The pool video was first noticed by the CBC microphones, which could only pick up fragments of the conversation. Listen. All right. Well, that's absolutely indiscernible as radio. But if you uh, see the clip, and I think pretty much uh, everybody has by now, uh, they've thrown subtitles up on it. And what you've got is Boris Johnson and Macron and Trudeau and a fourth guy. I don't know if I know who the fourth guy is. Do we know who the fourth guy is? No, I'm not sure. There's a fourth guy. Our producer, David, informs me we do know who that is. It is uh, the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte. Uh, Princess Anne was there, and uh, what was being said was they were all basically, uh, and it wasn't just Trudeau, like kind of gossiping in like pretty light mean girl style about how uh, Trump threw an impromptu 40-minute uh, press conference. And of course, Trump is bashing all these other countries for not uh, carrying their own weight in terms of military defense spending and, you know, his, his usual line about how, you know, maybe we're not going to defend you in this NATO alliance if you don't uh, pay your fair share. And all these leaders are getting together afterwards to, uh, I think, just kind of lightly roll their eyes. What did you make of this, Bashir? Well, I mean, Christmas season is coming up. And this whole thing reminds me of like when white people tell me about how they fight their racist uncles during Christmas, but then feel afraid to confront it head on in public. It was kind of funny, like just seeing the behind the scenes and seeing that they're not afraid to roast him behind the scenes. And I, I don't know, I really wish that they would take this dance more in public instead of having those press conferences where they smile in front of media and try to play politics. It sounds like you agree with Trump that he was being a bit two-faced. Uh, I mean, I, I don't like Trump, but yeah, I mean, he's pretty two-faced. And I mean, from my experience, he's really good at like making things look good, which is like having press conferences where he projects a good image. He's really good at talking about things that when you look at it, don't actually make a lot of sense to bring it back to local stuff. Like when he created that whole minister for middle class and how they're apparently supposed to focus on affordability. I mean, it's, it's, it's Trudeau's whole thing. Like he just tries to knit random things together without substance. And I think it's kind of funny that he got caught this time around. I don't know. Like I'm really interested to see how, how he talks his way out of this, but I think, I don't know, most Canadians are not surprised by this. I want to get into that in a second, but first, just a little bit of a media history of this particular clip, because uh, as you heard in the CNN clip, they credit CBC for capturing the audio, and CBC is taking credit for breaking this. The truth of this is that it was first broadcast by Sputnik News. It was live streamed by Sputnik. And all these cameras were, you can see in the larger version of this that Sputnik put up, there was tons of media outside the room where this reception was taking place and they could zoom in. And, you know, the shotgun mics are pretty good these days. So, uh, you know, you could maybe fault these leaders for knowing that cameras could potentially pick up their conversation. But in terms of who broke this, it's a little bit of a fuzzy thing. The fact that it was Sputnik had a lot of people or some people online speculating, like, don't fall for it. This is clearly a, a Russian propaganda thing. They're trying to create divisions between allies. I don't think you can get there because like they just live streamed it. Yeah. And it was CBC who took the footage 
clipped it to focus on this little uh, conversation between Macron, Johnson, and and, and Trudeau uh, and others, and put the subtitles on so you could actually, they cleaned up the audio and they put the subtitles on so you could actually hear what they were saying. Bashir, your take was consistent with one way that people are reading this. And it's interesting because it's uniting people on the progressive side with uh, Trudeau hating people on the right. Yeah. Who are saying that this is just more uh, evidence of Trudeau uh, just being completely incompetent and embarrassing us on the world stage. I guess on the progressive side, it's more of a focus on Trudeau wanting to have it both ways. And why can't he stand up to Trump in public? Of course, I saw this and I saw I thought, as I think a lot of people did. What's the big fucking deal about this? And, and, and really what's revealed by this is that none of these guys respect Trump. The idea that Trudeau is the loser and is the fool in this situation uh, was sort of my second, a uh, secondary thing that, you know, like what, what I, you know, made from this was like, oh, it's interesting to see that all of these people do what everybody else does, which is roll their eyes at Trump. You know, there was something particularly vicious about what they said. I'm sure that it is destabilizing to have this guy who, A, is insulting them in their countries, and B, is just throwing, you know, a lot of chaos into the way that things are usually done by throwing, you know, an unexpected 40-minute press conference. I don't know what to take of this ultimately. I mean, everyone's going to kind of try to spin this to their own narrative, but it feels a bit like a big nothing to me. So I guess to kind of go back a little bit, I I don't see Trudeau as incompetent or, or anything. Like, I think he's a pretty smart politician in terms of how he frames himself. Like, he frames himself as a progressive prime minister that cares about human rights, and then he'll sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. I mean, you can only do that if, if you understand politics. I, th- I think the interesting thing here is it kind of peels away at, at this image a lot of, you know, liberals and people on the center have of politics, like this whole West Wing thing of, you know, respecting people uh, who you disagree with. Like, it really peels that away. And... and and shows that it's bullshit, like, to be honest. And that's my main takeaway from it. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. 
Edmonton Catholic School Board does not want him to speak on talk radio. Ezra Levant warned us about putting him on this podcast. But activist and blogger Bashir Mohammed, joining us from Edmonton, hello. Hey, thanks for having me on. Bashir, on today's show, Trump calls him two-faced. Everybody here knows him better in brown face. We're going to talk about what's-his-face. We're going to talk about the turmoil and trouble of one Bashir Mohammed. That's you. We got a good source on this one. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to talk about the Globe and Mail's all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet. Want some excoriating condemnation? They've got it. Want some bootlicking capitulation? They've got that too. What a rich diversity of opinions. Good to have you with us. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. This episode is brought to everybody by James Allenspock, Brad, Jim Struthers, Jamie Morrison, Gary Raisinen, Adam Deutsch, Lisa D'Agostino, and Vicky. Hi, my name is Vicky, and I support Canada Land because we don't seem to have much left of our so-called democracy, but a free press supported by the people is something that I am not prepared to lose. I like to get all perspectives as a bit of a news junkie, and Canada Land is one of those perspectives I particularly enjoy. So keep it up, Jesse and team. Bashir, by now you've probably heard this. Uh, it has uh, got everyone talking. What was said between world leaders yeah. over drinks at Buckingham Palace? The summit so far marked by some tensions or reactions, including a few with French President Emmanuel Macron are adding to that tension. This new video that surfaced last night showing several of those same leaders seeming to gossip about President Trump. The pool video was first noticed by the CBC microphones which could only pick up fragments of the conversation. Listen. All right, well, that's absolutely indiscernible as radio, but if you uh, see the clip, and I think pretty much uh, everybody has by now, uh, they've thrown subtitles up on it, and what you've got is Boris Johnson and Macron and Trudeau, and a fourth guy. I don't know if I know who the fourth guy is. Do we know who the fourth guy is? No, I'm not sure. There's a fourth guy. Our producer, David, informs me we do know who that is. It is uh, the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte. Uh, Princess Anne was there. And uh, what was being said was they were all basically, uh, it wasn't just Trudeau, like kind of gossiping in like pretty light mean girl style about how uh, Trump threw an impromptu 40-minute uh, press conference. And of course, Trump is bashing all these other countries for not uh, carrying their own weight in terms of military defense spending and you know, his, his usual line about how, you know, maybe we're not going to defend you in this NATO alliance if you don't uh, pay your fair share. And all these leaders are getting together afterwards to, uh, I think, just kind of lightly roll their eyes. What did you make of this, Bashir? Well, I mean, Christmas season is coming up. And this whole thing reminds me of like when white people tell me about how they fight their racist uncles during Christmas, but then feel afraid to confront it head on in public. It was kind of funny, like just seeing the behind the scenes and seeing that they're not afraid to roast him behind the scenes. And I, I don't know, I really wish that they would take this dance more in public instead of having those press conferences where they smile in front of media and try to play politics. It sounds like you agree with Trump that he was being a bit two-faced. Uh, I mean, I, I don't like Trump, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can agree with him about Trump something. is, okay. is pretty two-faced. And I mean, from my experience, he's really good at 
like making things look good, which is like having press conferences where he projects a good image. He's really good at talking about things that when you look at it, don't actually make a lot of sense to bring it back to local stuff. Like when he created that whole minister for middle class and how they're apparently supposed to focus on affordability. I mean, it's, it's, it's Trudeau's whole thing. Like he just tries to knit random things together without substance. And I think it's kind of funny that he got caught this time around. I don't know. Like I'm really interested to see how, how he talks his way out of this, but I think, I don't know, most Canadians are not surprised by this. I want to get into that in a second, but first, just a little bit of a media history of this particular clip, because uh, as you heard in the CNN clip, they credit CBC for capturing the audio and CBC is taking credit for breaking this. The truth of this is that it was first broadcast by Sputnik News. It was live streamed by Sputnik and all these cameras were you can see in the larger version of this that Sputnik put up. There was tons of media outside the room where this reception was taking place and they could zoom in. And, you know, the shotgun mics are pretty good these days. So, uh, you know, you could maybe fault these leaders for knowing that cameras could potentially pick up their conversation. But in terms of who broke this, it's a little bit of a fuzzy thing. The fact that it was Sputnik had a lot of people or some people online speculating, like, don't fall for it. This is clearly a, a Russian propaganda thing. They're trying to create divisions between allies. I don't think you can get there because, like, they just live streamed it. Yeah. And it was CBC who took the footage, clipped it to focus on this little uh, conversation between Macron, Johnson, and, and, and Trudeau uh, and others and put the subtitles on so you could actually, they cleaned up the audio and they put the subtitles on so you could actually hear what they were saying. Bashir, your take was consistent with one way that people are reading this. And it's interesting because it's uniting people on the progressive side with uh, Trudeau hating people on the right yeah. who are saying that this is just more uh, evidence of Trudeau uh, just being completely incompetent and embarrassing us on the world stage. I guess on the progressive side, it's more of a focus on Trudeau wanting to have it both ways. And why can't he stand up to Trump in public? Of course, I saw this and I saw I thought, as I think a lot of people did. What's the big fucking deal about this? And, and and really what's revealed by this is that none of these guys respect Trump. The idea that Trudeau is the loser and is the fool in this situation uh, was sort of my second, a uh, secondary thing that, you know, like what, what I, you know, made from this was like, oh, it's interesting to see that all of these people do what everybody else does, which is roll their eyes at Trump. You know, there was something particularly vicious about what they said. I'm sure that it is destabilizing to have this guy who, A, is insulting them in their countries, and B, is just throwing, you know, a lot of chaos into the way that things are usually done by throwing, you know, an unexpected 40-minute press conference. I don't know what to take of this ultimately. I mean, everyone's going to kind of try to spin this to their own narrative, but it feels a bit like a big nothing to me. So I guess to kind of go back a little bit, I I, I don't see Trudeau as incompetent or, or anything. Like, I think he's a pretty smart politician in terms of how he frames himself. Like, he frames himself as a progressive prime minister that cares about human rights, and then he'll sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. I mean, you can only do that if, if you understand politics. I, th I think the interesting thing here is it kind of peels away at, at this image a lot of, you know, liberals and people on the center have of politics, like this whole West Wing thing of, you know, respecting people uh, who you disagree with. Like, it really peels that away. And... and and shows that it's bullshit, like, to be honest. And that's my main takeaway from it. Bashir, you're in the midst of uh, controversy and uh, aggression from multiple sides here. Um, I think that maybe this is something that uh, you better take us through, though I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to balance uh, your account from what other parties of this have told us about what went on. Where would you begin this story? Yeah, I mean, I would begin it on September 12th. 11-year-old uh, uh, ML is a student, walked into his Catholic school and he was wearing a do-rag. When he walked in, the principal told him to take it off, uh, accused uh, the do-rag of being symbolic of gang activity. 
Uh, he refused. Then he went to the state officer. A state officer in, in, in Edmonton schools, for context, is like a retired cop. So they effectively act as like school resource officers in schools that, that don't have school resource officers. And yeah, uh, he, he repeated the same thing. Uh, he said that the DREG affiliated gang activity. So the DREG uh, was a symbol of red alert. For those who are familiar with gangs in Edmonton, uh, red alert is not a black gang. Anyways, uh, the mother is obviously upset by this, tries to set up a meeting, finally has a meeting with the principal, actually records that meeting. But in the meeting, the principal says she's raising her voice. Principal refuses to, uh, well, actually doubles down on the whole gang accusation, ends up pushing the panic button, puts the entire school on lockdown. Like, you know, the same thing they do with school shootings, but instead it was a black woman standing up for her rights, puts the school on lockdown. I end up working with the mom. We send an email to the school board trustee. School board trustee sends an email to the admin, and then the mom ends up getting banned from the school. What follows is this whole like weird two-month saga of us trying to get an apology from the school board and also trying to get the ban removed and also like trying to get that whole policy reviewed. Uh, for context, duregs are actually not in their no-hat policy, but for some reason throughout this whole thing, people have been mistaking a dureg for a hat. So anyways, the school board has refused to apologize. Uh, they refused to meet with us with community members in the room. And uh, we showed up to a Catholic school board meeting on Tuesday. There's nothing on the agenda about this issue, which kind of blew my mind because it was covered in Edmonton media. We put our signs outside because we're told by an unidentified person that if we bring signs in, we'll be kicked out. In the middle of the meeting, I decided to have a silent protest. I raised a petition in the air with our three demands and my fist in the air. And then, yeah, like, uh, what followed after that was weird. I went on a radio show in Edmonton to talk about the Ryan Jesperson show. Uh, Catholic school board calls like minutes before air and threatens them with a lawsuit if they have me on. Uh, and then Rebel writes an article, uh, I think the day after. And yeah, it's been a really weird week. Okay, so we got this kid, M.L. Somerville, who goes to Christ the King Catholic School in Edmonton. Yeah. Are there a, a lot of black students at the school? Uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty diverse neighborhood. Uh, yeah. yeah. The school itself is, is, is somewhat diverse. Okay, so the Edmonton Catholic School Board has said that race had no bearing on this action. Uh, when they forbid him to wear the do-rag and said that it had all these gang affiliations and called this security guy. Uh, they have not apologized to the kid or his mom. They haven't released the surveillance tapes where they say the mom got all aggressive. However, they say, we find it exceedingly disappointing that while we worked together to resolve this matter, community members continue to disparage our efforts. So they object to this being framed as any kind of a racist uh, yeah. incident. And uh, they also have apologized publicly anyhow, I don't know, I guess not to the people uh, directly, we want to start by recognizing and apologizing for the use of the word gang with regards to the situation, said Edmonton Catholic Schools uh, in a statement of October 17th. You get involved to advocate for this family, and that's when these other things happen to you. I want to play, and I want to also um, clarify the Catholic School Board's position. They said to us that they did not threaten the radio station, when you were set to go on Jesperson's show, they said to us that uh, on uh, November 30th, we found out that Mr. Bashir Muhammad would be on a chorus entertainment talk show. In light of Mr. Muhammad's history of making defamatory comments about our staff, we notified chorus entertainment of our concerns in this regard. It was on this basis that this decision was made to contact chorus to make them aware. We did not threaten to sue the radio station or Mr. Muhammad. Your contention that they did threaten to sue is backed up by the host, Ryan Jesperson, 
uh, who tweeted, as a talk host, it's a hell of a thing to be threatened with legal action from a $500 million a year school district. I won't be bullied into silence. He went ahead and had you on the show. Let's hear a little bit of that. We have learned here at Chorus Radio in the last little bit, I'm talking in the last number of minutes, uh, that as a result of developments at Tuesday's meeting, uh, that there may be uh, pending legal action uh, against you or against individuals. We don't know. I don't have the full details. But we have been contacted here. And this is a unique position for me to be in as host, especially on a live broadcast, uh, that uh, the the legal implications of this could extend to this broadcast and this radio station. Uh, In other words, uh, we're being threatened with a lawsuit uh, if you and I continue a conversation about the specifics of what's going on. Okay, so I think to their credit, Ryan Jesperson and 630CHED went ahead, had you on. Yeah. Then the rebel, I think it's fair to say, attacks you. Uh, Kian Bexty, who has, um, as reported by Ricochet, Press Progress, and Anti-Racist Canada, he once worked for a Calgary company that sold Rhodesian and apartheid South African flags and war memorabilia. These are common white supremacist symbols. He, uh, he publishes a video about you. This unhinged NDP activist is a real-life troll, according to a National Post article, Bashir Mohammed. And Bashir Mohammed just decided that he would demand what he wanted, and if he didn't get it, he would raise a stink. Now, Bashir Mohammed can do whatever he wants, but I'm going to give some context for you as to what kind of person Bashir really is. You might remember him from a video of mine done earlier when I was in Edmonton following the Minister of Education. He took it upon his thuggish self to push me into oncoming traffic. He actually pushed me off the sidewalk, across a bike lane, and into an active street. So Rebel Media did this whole thing on it. Uh, and I guess for some context, me and Kean have a, have a history. He came to cover a protest in support of gay-straight alliances, and he was like harassing people. So I like stood between him and stuck my hands out. Somehow he interpreted that as like me pushing him. So, so half this video is not actually about the actual issue. Half the video is about him trying to show the public, quote, what kind of person I am. So he goes on this whole thing saying that I pushed him. Uh, as a matter of fact, the video itself is actually titled Somali Refugee Crisis Catholic School Board Meeting. So, so you can tell like this whole thing was designed to go after me, but also to misrepresent this entire issue. Then you tweet that you have served, uh, you and your attorney have uh, crafted a a libel notice and served it to the rebel, and you posted your libel notice in which you claim that you have been defamed because uh, the specific uh, things are in Kean saying that you assaulted him. That's not true. You claim that he's incited violence and death threats against you. Yeah. And that uh, in aggregate, uh, the rebel's video and publications uh, by Mr. Bexty convey the general sentiment that Mr. Muhammad is a danger minister threat. So, so you, you tweet that you're going after them for these defamatory comments. We go to Ezra Levant for a response to that, and he says he's never been served. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get too in the weeds about this, but like this seems like this should be pretty clear. Either he was served with a notice of intent or he wasn't. So he says he was not, and he's not going to comment. I'll get into his response in more detail in a minute. But he basically says, I'm not going to respond to this because we haven't actually been served with this libel notice. Is that true? So we served Rebel as a corporation. Ezra is is a director for Rebel Media. So they're well aware of this, and I hope that they do take prompt action because I think the video is still up. 
as of us doing this actual interview, it still has, you know, those 1500 comments, a vast majority of which are racist and, and where many comments are, are direct threats. Yeah. I don't know what he's basing it on. He says, I checked and we haven't been served with any purported legal documents, so I can't comment on them. And, uh, the spirit of balance and fairness, here's what he goes on to say. I would caution you not to republish defamatory comments about us or to make your own. My experience with Bashir Muhammad is that he engages in defamation. For example, he calls us Nazis, which is factually incorrect and obviously grossly defamatory. I'm a Jewish Zionist, and I regularly lead missions to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial and Museum. Kian Bexty is a supporter of Canada's oldest Jewish civil rights group, the B'nai B'rith. Muhammad has a history of malice towards Rebel News and Kian in particular. And as your defamation lawyer will tell you, malice defeats the defense of fair comment. So please be careful not to make Muhammad's defamation your own. Because of his long-standing vendetta, they may be legally indefensible. He goes on further. There are already libel notices flying. No point in getting caught up in that yourself. Uh, I will not call uh, Ezra Levant a Nazi or rebel media Nazis. I'll call him a bigot. He attacked uh, the Roma people as a group in disgusting uh, and defamatory ways. So I don't know. This is a mess, Bashir. It's, it seems like the focus has... has uh, shifted from this kid who I think I think needed advocacy uh, to making it this kind of like ugly thing between you and the rebel. In my opinion, uh, the Catholic school board and that principal and that school have not acted great. Uh, they seem to have acknowledged that to some extent with their apology and their position seems strange and inconsistent. And I think that they should definitely deal with this on a personal level. But bringing it back to the issue, uh, I'm also committed to seeing this case in Edmonton through to make sure that you know, and amalgate justice. And just to speak about that a little bit, I think it's inspiring how strong they have been. A lot of people are like uh, commending me for all this rebel stuff, but Amel is 11 years old. Yuna is a young mom and she's been, you know, doing this for months. They are the ones who are strong. I'm just the guy who's in a lucky position that has the resources to be able to help them, but also to be able to fight against rebel media. So in any case, I think they are the real heroes, and I really hope that we can focus the issue back on them. If people want to know, they can go on facebook.com slash justice for ML, and that's where we have a lot more information. What is the upshot of this? I mean, well, the upshot is that people are starting to hear, like, to hear about this and, and take this issue ser uh, seriously. And before I get there, I just want to quickly, I just want to say, so Rebel builds their whole thing on going against identity politics. And their main defense against not being racist is by using identity politics. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous. This is the same publication that, that plays up terrible uh, myths and rumors about refugees. The same publication that, uh, that on November 29th, instead of writing my name, they cast me as a Somali refugee, as a Islamic refugee. They call me a thug. They say I pushed somebody. If, if, if I pushed Kian, I guarantee you that back then they would have created a website. They would have, uh, you know, made this whole thing about it. You've got something that I think that the and that they called you uh, Islamic refugee thug. The strongest part of, of your uh, claim, as I as I can see it, is when they say that you physically assaulted him. And if you can prove otherwise, that's clearly defamatory to say that somebody uh, is, is, you know, committed a crime like that. The rest of it is like kind of their bread and butter of um, using aesthetics and a certain kind of terminology uh you know you can call an activist a thug and call it a, an opinion uh you know like like are you going to go through with this as a on, on the grounds of libel if they don't take it down it's it's a long and expensive uh road to fight it on on those grounds i think that speaking up about it publicly and, and presenting the facts of both sides is uh is a pretty clear way of of presenting what you have to say are you prepared 
to see this through to the point where you win, uh, like in an actual formal courtroom setting? I mean, yeah, for sure. I have to tell you, like Rebel is a publication that has boosted white supremacists like Faith Goldie, that has pushed the whole great replacement myth, the myth that uh, white people are being replaced. So for, for them to do this and, and for me to respond this way, I want them to know I'm serious. I want them to know that if they don't take down the video, if they don't apologize, that I'm down to go all the way. Bashir, you're in the midst of uh, controversy and uh, aggression from multiple sides here. Um, I think that maybe this is something that uh, you better take us through, though I'm going to I'm gonna balance uh, your account from what other parties of this have told us about what went on. Where would you begin this story? Yeah, I mean, I would begin it on September 12th. Uh, 11-year-old uh, ML is a student, walked into his Catholic school, and he was wearing a do-rag. When he walked in, the principal told him to take it off, uh, accused uh, the do-rag of being symbolic of gang activity. Uh, he refused. Then he went to the stay officer. A stay officer in, in, in Edmonton schools, for context, is like a retired cop. So they effectively act as like school resource officers in schools that, that don't have school resource officers. And yeah, uh, he, he repeated the same thing. Uh, he said that the do-rag affiliated gang activity. He said the do-rag uh, was a symbol of red alert. For those who are familiar with gangs in Edmonton, uh, red alert is not a black gang. Anyways, uh, the mother is obviously upset by this, tries to set up a meeting, finally has a meeting with the principal, actually records that meeting. But in the meeting, the principal says she's raising her voice. Principal refuses to, uh, well, actually doubles down on the whole gang accusation, ends up pushing the panic button, puts the entire school on lockdown. Like, you know, the same thing they do with school shootings, but instead it was a black woman standing up for her rights, puts the school on lockdown. I end up working with the mom. We send an email to the school board trustee. School board trustee sends an email to the admin, and then the mom ends up getting banned from the school. What follows is this whole like weird two-month saga of us trying to get an apology from the school board and also trying to get the ban removed and also like trying to get that whole policy reviewed. Uh, for context, do-regs are actually not in their no-hat policy, but for some reason throughout this whole thing, people have been mistaking a do-reg for a hat. So anyways, the school board has refused to apologize. Uh, they refused to meet with us with community members in the room. And uh, we showed up to a Catholic school board meeting on Tuesday. There's nothing on the agenda about this issue, which kind of blew my mind because it was covered in Edmonton media. We put our signs outside because we're told by an unidentified person that if we bring signs in, we'll be kicked out. In the middle of the meeting, I decided to have a silent protest. I raised a petition in the air with our three demands and my fist in the air. And then, yeah, like uh, what followed after that was weird. I went on a radio show in Edmonton to talk about the Ryan Jesperson show. Uh, Catholic school board calls like minutes before air and threatens them with a lawsuit if they have me on. Uh, and then Rebel writes an article, uh, I think the day after. And yeah, it's been a really weird week. Okay, so we got this kid, M.L. Somerville, who goes to Christ the King Catholic School in Edmonton. Yeah. Are there a, a lot of black students at the school? Uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty diverse neighborhood. Uh, yeah. yeah. The school itself is, is, is somewhat diverse. Okay, so the Edmonton Catholic School Board has said that race had no bearing on this action. Uh, when they forbid him to wear the do-rag and said that it had all these gang affiliations and called this security guy. Uh, they have not apologized to the kid or his mom. They haven't released the surveillance tapes where they say the mom got all aggressive. However, they say, we find it exceedingly disappointing that while we worked together to resolve this matter, community members continue to disparage our efforts. So they object to this being framed as any kind of a racist uh, yeah. incident. And uh, they also have apologized 
publicly anyhow, I don't know, I guess not to the people uh, directly, we want to start by recognizing and apologizing for the use of the word gang with regards to the situation, said Edmonton Catholic Schools uh, in a statement of October 17th. You get involved to advocate for this family, and that's when these other things happen to you. I want to play, and I want to also um, clarify the Catholic School Board's position. They said to us that they did not threaten the radio station. When you were set to go on Jesperson's show, they said to us that uh, on uh, November 30th, we found out that Mr. Bashir Muhammad would be on a chorus entertainment talk show. In light of Mr. Muhammad's history of making defamatory comments about our staff, we notified chorus entertainment of our concerns in this regard. It was on this basis that this decision was made to contact chorus to make them aware. We did not threaten to sue the radio station or Mr. Muhammad. Your contention that they did threaten to sue is backed up by the host, Ryan Jesperson, uh, who tweeted, as a talk host, it's a hell of a thing to be threatened with legal action from a $500 million a year school district. I won't be bullied into silence. He went ahead and had you on the show. Let's hear a little bit of that. We have learned here at Chorus Radio in the last little bit, I'm talking in the last number of minutes, uh, that as a result of developments at Tuesday's meeting, uh, that there may be uh, pending legal action uh, against you or against individuals we don't know i don't have the full details yeah. but we have been contacted here and this is a unique position for me to be in as host most especially on a live broadcast uh that uh the the legal implications of this could extend to this broadcast and this radio station uh in other words uh we're being threatened with a lawsuit uh if you and i continue a conversation about the specifics of what's going on Okay, so I think to their credit, Ryan Jesperson and 630CHED went ahead, had you on. Yeah. Then the rebel, I think it's fair to say, attacks you. Uh, Kean Bexty, who has, um, as reported by Ricochet, Press Progress, and Anti-Racist Canada, he once worked for a Calgary company that sold Rhodesian and apartheid South African flags and war memorabilia. These are common white supremacist symbols. He, uh, he publishes a video about you. This unhinged NDP activist is a real-life troll, according to a National Post article, Bashir Mohammed. And Bashir Mohammed just decided that he would demand what he wanted, and if he didn't get it, he would raise a stink. Now, Bashir Mohammed can do whatever he wants, but I'm going to give some context for you as to what kind of person Bashir really is. You might remember him from a video of mine done earlier when I was in Edmonton following the Minister of Education. He took it upon his thuggish self to push me into oncoming traffic. He actually pushed me off the sidewalk, across a bike lane, and into an active street. So Rebel Media did this whole thing on it. Uh, and I guess for some context, me and Keen have a, have a history. He came to cover a protest in support of gay straight alliances, and he was like harassing people. So I like stood between him and stuck my hands out. Somehow he interpreted that as like me pushing him. So, so half this video is not actually about the actual issue. Half the video is about him trying to show the public, quote, what kind of person I am. So he goes on this whole thing saying that I pushed him. Uh, as a matter of fact, the video itself is actually titled Somali Refugee Crisis Catholic School Board Meeting. So, so you can tell like this whole thing was designed to go after me, but also to misrepresent this entire issue. Then you tweet that you have served, uh, you and your attorney have uh, crafted a, a libel notice and served it to the rebel, and you posted your libel notice, 
in which you claim that you have been defamed because uh, the, the specific uh, things are in Kean saying that he, you assaulted him. That's not true. You claim that he's incited violence and death threats against you. Yeah. And that uh, in aggregate, uh, the Rebels video and publications uh, by Mr. Bextie convey the general sentiment that Mr. Muhammad is a danger menace or threat. So, so you, you tweet that you're going after them for these defamatory comments. We go to Ezra Levant for a response to that, and he says he's never been served. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get too in the weeds about this, but like this seems like this should be pretty clear. Either he was served with a notice of intent or he wasn't. So he says he was not, and he's not going to comment I'll get into his response in more detail in a minute. But he basically says, I'm not going to respond to this because we haven't actually been served with this libel notice. Is that true? So we served Rebel as the corporation. Ezra is is a director for Rebel Media. So they're well aware of this. And I hope that they do take prompt action because I think the video is still up as of us doing this actual interview. It still has you know those 1,500 comments, a vast majority of which are racist and and where many comments are are direct threats. Yeah, I don't know what he's basing it on. He says, I checked and we haven't been served with any purported legal documents, so I can't comment on them. And uh, the spirit of balance and fairness, here's what he goes on to say, I would caution you not to republish defamatory comments about us or to make your own. My experience with Bashir Muhammad is that he engages in defamation. For example, he calls us Nazis, which is factually incorrect and obviously grossly defamatory. I'm a Jewish Zionist, and I regularly lead missions to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial and Museum. Kian Bexty is a supporter of Canada's oldest Jewish civil rights group, the B'nai B'rith. Muhammad has a history of malice towards rebel news, and Kian in particular. And as your defamation lawyer will tell you, malice defeats the defense of fair comment. So please be careful not to make Muhammad's defamation your own. Because of his long-standing vendetta, they may be legally indefensible. He goes on further. There are already libel notices flying. No point in getting caught up in that yourself. Uh, I will not call uh, Ezra Levant a Nazi or rebel media Nazis. I'll call him a bigot. He attacked uh, the Roma people as a group in disgusting uh, and defamatory ways. So I don't know. This is a mess, Bashir. It's, it seems like the focus has... has uh, shifted from this kid who I think I think needed advocacy uh, to making it this kind of like ugly thing between you and the rebel. In my opinion, uh, the Catholic school board and that principal and that school have not acted great. Uh, they seem to have acknowledged that to some extent with their apology and their position seems strange and inconsistent. And I think that they should definitely deal with this on a personal level. But bringing it back to the issue, uh, I'm also committed to seeing this case in Edmonton through to make sure that you know, and amalgate justice. And just to speak about that a little bit, I think it's inspiring how strong they have been. A lot of people are like uh, commending me for all this rebel stuff, but Mel is 11 years old. Yuna is a young mom and she's been, you know, doing this for months. They are the ones who are strong. I'm just the guy who's in a lucky position that has the resources to be able to help them, but also to be able to fight against rebel media. So in any case, I think they are the real heroes, and I really hope that we could focus the issue back on them. If people want to know, they can go on facebook.com slash justice for ML, and that's where we have a lot more information. What is the upshot of this? I mean, well, the upshot is that people are starting to hear, like, to hear about this and, and take this issue ser- uh, seriously. And, and before I get there, I just want to quickly, I just want to say, so Rebel builds their whole thing on going against identity politics. 
And their main defense against not being racist is by using identity politics. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous. This is the same publication that, that plays up terrible uh, myths and rumors about refugees. The same publication that, uh, that on November 29th, instead of writing my name, they cast me as a Somali refugee, as a Islamic refugee. They call me a thug. They say I pushed somebody. If, if, if I pushed Kian, I guarantee you that back then they would have created a website. They would have, uh, you know, ma- made this whole thing about it. You've got something that I think that the and that they called you uh, Islamic refugee thug. The strongest part of, of your uh, claim, as I as I can see it, is when they say that you physically assaulted him. And if you can prove otherwise, that's clearly defamatory to say that somebody uh, is, is, you know, committed a crime like that. The rest of it is like kind of their bread and butter of um, using aesthetics and a certain kind of terminology uh you know you can call an activist a thug and call it a, an opinion uh you know like like are you going to go through with this as a on, on the grounds of libel if they don't take it down it's it's a long and expensive uh road to fight it on on those grounds i think that speaking up about it publicly and, and presenting the facts of both sides is uh is a pretty clear way of of presenting what you have to say are you prepared to see this through to the point where you win, uh, like in an actual formal courtroom setting? I mean, yeah, for sure. I have to tell you, like Rebel is a publication that has boosted white supremacists like Faith Goldie, that has pushed the whole great replacement myth, the myth that uh, white people are being replaced. So for, for them to do this and, and for me to respond this way, I want them to know I'm serious. I want them to know that if they don't take down the video, if they don't apologize, that I'm down to go all the way. Bashir, I'm going to duly note something, and then I'm going to ask you to duly note something. Sound okay? Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, as I have announced uh, before, we've been following this story that uh, that broke some some years ago about uh, Slava Pashtuk, the uh, former editor at Vice Canada, who was charged with uh, conspiracy to traffic in cocaine and was uh, trying to recruit vice uh, employees and interns and other people and succeeded and five kids went to jail in Australia and uh, ultimately he was charged and um, I was uh, in court I've gotten to know Slava because we are we are working on a podcast that we'll be releasing soon about him and about the people who he propositioned and about vice and uh, yeah I was there uh, we're recording on Wednesday I was there yesterday on Tuesday when um, he went off to jail for nine years it was quite something to watch. And I got to just say, like, I'm duly noting this because it's a major point in this in this pretty big Canadian media story. And just to let people know that the story that we're putting together with this new podcast, Cool Mules, it's filled with angles and perspectives that I did not expect. And the more we learn about the people affected and there are uh, victims, and the more I learn about the perpetrator and the people he was working with, this is a, a holy shit story, but a story that's about so many other things. So you can read about... This most recent chapter, uh, the National Post, Adrian Humphreys and Sean Craig have been on this, and uh, you can read about this most recent chapter there. You can also read The Ringer. They have published, uh, U.S. news site, podcast network, they, they published a big feature on the whole story that uh, I encourage people to read. It's a good piece of reporting. And uh, if you want to know, really, I think the most exhaustive version of this, uh, subscribe to Cool Mules to promo that shamelessly, because that show is going to be released uh, soon in the new year. Duly noted. Bashir, what would you like to point people's attention to? I think something that deserves a lot of attention are the layoffs that are coming in Alberta. Uh, It was announced that 750 registered nurses uh, positions would be cut. In addition, 5,000 public service positions would be cut. And in response uh, to all this, Premier Jason Kenney's issues management 
director, Matt Wolf, uh, tweeted out questioning nurses' pay. And this has kind of caused like a, a big reaction of people sharing their stories uh, about nurses. Uh, one person, Shannon Raziki, a general internist in Calgary, wrote, On one holiday evening many years ago, a woman was dying and we couldn't reach her family. A registered nurse climbed into her bed with her and wrapped her arms around this woman and repeated, You are not alone, over and over until she died. So I would like to duly note those nurses that are going to lose their jobs, but also the public sector workers who do so much for the province. Duly noted. I have one final one. Now Magazine, which is uh, the biggest alternative news weekly in Canada and uh, one of the biggest in North America through its time publishing, has been sold for a sum that uh, we're told does not exceed $2 million, which suggests that it's $2 million which is less than many modest-sized homes in downtown Toronto. Our editor, Jonathan Goldsby, here at Canada, and you used to work at now, he uh, he tweeted some thoughts on this. He, he says, well, that is the beginning of the end. The newspaper has been sold to Brian Kalish, CEO of Media Central, who seems to think of Now Magazine as a journal of the quote-unquote creative class, his first acquisition in a scheme to consolidate the remaining alt weeklies. He's kind of picking up at a, for a, for a, a song, these uh, really dilapidated and struggling alt weeklies across North America. Here's what he says: the true value of this exertive segment of the population, the creative class, has never been fully monetized until now. This is a shabby end, I will note, to, and, and I agree with Jonathan, this does seem like the beginning of the end of Now Magazine, and it's not this guy's fault, though uh, the idea that Now Magazine is, is now just going to be one of his points of creative class monetization. The alternative Newsweekly um, scene and the alternative Newsweekly press meant something. Uh, the Village Voice and then on to so many others, it was a place where people could get their start in journalism. These were newspapers that were progressive-leaning papers. They were downtown papers. There were places where sex workers could advertise. There were places where bands could be uh, talked about and, and advertised. I don't know. They meant something to people. And, you know, I don't mean to get sentimental about this. There are other places where all those things happen now. But it is the end of something, and we're going to be exploring it further. Uh, Michael Hollett, one of the founders of NOW, uh, is going to come on for a, a discussion on Canada land. But I think that um, the sale for $2 million paltry dollars of NOW magazine, one of the great alt-weeklies, is something worth uh, worth noting. Duly noted. Bashir, I'm going to duly note something, and then I'm going to ask you to duly note something. Sound okay? Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, as I have announced uh, before, we've been following this story that uh, that broke some some years ago about uh, Slava Pashtuk, the uh, former editor at Vice Canada, who was charged with uh, conspiracy to traffic in cocaine and was uh, trying to recruit Vice uh, employees and interns and other people and succeeded. And five kids went to jail in Australia and uh, ultimately he was charged and um I was uh, in court. I've gotten to know Slava because we are we are working on a podcast that we'll be releasing soon about him and about the people who he propositioned and about Vice. And uh, yeah, I was there. Uh, we're recording on Wednesday. I was there yesterday on Tuesday when um, he went off to jail for nine years. It was quite something to watch. And I got to just say, like, I'm duly noting this because it's a major point in this in this pretty big Canadian media story. And just to let people know that the story that we're putting together with this new podcast, Cool Mules, 
it's filled with angles and perspectives that I did not expect. And the more we learn about the people affected and there are uh, victims, and the more I learn about the perpetrator and the people he was working with, this is a, a holy shit story, but a story that's about so many other things. So you can read about this most recent chapter, uh, the National Post, Adrian Humphreys and Sean Craig have been on this, and uh, you can read about this most recent chapter there. You can also read The Ringer. They have published, uh, U.S. news site, podcast network, they, they published a big feature on the whole story that uh, I encourage people to read. It's a good piece of reporting. And uh, if you want to know, really, I think the most exhaustive version of this, uh, subscribe to Cool Mules to promo that shamelessly, because that show is going to be released uh, soon in the new year. Duly noted. Bashir, what would you like to point people's attention to? I think something that deserves a lot of attention are the layoffs that are coming in Alberta. Uh, it was announced that 750 registered nurses uh, positions would be cut. In addition, 5,000 uh, public service positions would be cut. And in response uh, to all this, Premier Jason Kenney's issues management director, Matt Wolf, uh, tweeted out questioning nurses' pay. And this has kind of caused like a, a big reaction of people sharing their stories uh, about nurses. Uh, one person, Shannon Raziki, a general attorneyist in Calgary, wrote, On one holiday evening many years ago, a woman was dying and we couldn't reach her family. A registered nurse climbed into her bed with her and wrapped her arms around this woman and repeated, You are not alone, over and over until she died. So I would like to duly note those nurses that are going to lose their jobs, but also the public sector workers who do so much for the province. Duly noted. I have one final one. Now Magazine, which is uh, the biggest alternative news weekly in Canada and uh, one of the biggest in North America through its time publishing, has been sold for a sum that uh, we're told does not exceed $2 million, which suggests that it's $2 million which is less than many modest-sized homes in downtown Toronto. Our editor, Jonathan Goldsby, here at Canada Line, used to work at Now. He uh, he tweeted some thoughts on this. He, he says, well, that is the beginning of the end. The newspaper has been sold to Brian Kalish, CEO of Media Central, who seems to think of Now Magazine as a journal of the quote-unquote creative class, his first acquisition in a scheme to consolidate the remaining alt-weeklies, he's kind of picking up at a, for, for a, a song these uh, really dilapidated and struggling alt-weeklies across North America. Here's what he says. The true value of this exertive segment of the population, the creative class, has never been fully monetized until now. This is a shabby end, I will note, to, and, and I agree with Jonathan, this does seem like the beginning of the end of Now Magazine, and it's not this guy's fault, though uh, the idea that Now Magazine is, is now just going to be one of his points of creative class monetization. The alternative Newsweekly um, scene and the alternative Newsweekly press meant something. Uh, the Village Voice and then on to so many others, it was a place where people could get their start in journalism. These were newspapers that were progressive-leaning papers. They were downtown papers. They were places where sex workers could advertise. There were places where bands could be uh, talked about and, and advertised. I don't know. They meant something to people. And, you know, I don't mean to get sentimental about this. There are other places where all those things happen now. But it is the end of something, and we're going to be exploring it further. Uh, Michael Hollett, one of the founders of NOW, uh, is going to come on for a, a discussion on Canada land. But I think that um, the sale for $2 million paltry dollars of NOW magazine one of the great alt-weeklies is something worth, uh, worth noting. Duly noted. Bashir, I want to talk about 
coverage of China in the Canadian press. And I want to zero in on the Globe and Mail's evolving coverage of China kind of holistically because there's all kinds of different ways that we cover China uh, as a business story, as a human rights story, as um, a political story. The context is large, but some of the specific context, of course, is that while the stories that I'm going to talk about uh, were published, of course, Canadians Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig uh, sit in jail, political prisoners, under 24-hour glaring lights. The conditions that they're held under, the interrogations, all of it uh, meets the UN's definition of torture. And of course, while all of this is unfolding, China is cracking down on protesters in Hong Kong. There are mass arrests. At least a couple of people have been killed. 300,000 Canadians live in Hong Kong, a lot of them in the universities. The universities are under siege by the authorities, and the authorities are threatening to open fire in those universities. That is the context under which the Globe and Mail publishes the following editorial on November 12th. China's not changing, so we need to learn to get along. That was something that they published by one Wendy Dobson, a professor emerita at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, in which uh, Wendy Dobson argues that... Um, in Confucian terms, Canada is small and of limited significance. It is we who must change and learn to live with China. Canadians have much to learn about China. I will say that uh, buried uh, towards the end of her piece, she says that, you know, when, when necessary, we need to speak up about human rights abuses in China. But the piece basically is that we should know our place and China is never going to change. Twelve days after that was published, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists released the China Cables. Documents that were leaked to them by an anonymous source, uh, which are operating manuals for, I think, what can only be described as a 21st century concentration camp in Xinjiang, excuse my pronunciation, where hundreds of thousands of Muslim Uyghurs, some say over a million, are being held. And we know from former inmates uh, who report that while being held, they were tortured, beaten, uh, and punished with rape. And... I'm not trying to condemn uh, the Globe and Mail as much as uh, I, I, I want to kind of reflect on how difficult it is proving in terms of figuring out a Canadian response to this. That one editorial that I highlighted is in the minority of the Globe's coverage. I don't know if it was in response to what we learned from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And I will point out the role of journalism in this. You know, investigative journalism is how we know about what happened, what is happening in these concentration camps. Journalism is how we know about what's happening in Hong Kong, where journalists can report. Tibet, there's all kinds of things we don't know about in China because we don't have journalism there. So the Globe and Mail has found its voice since running that editorial. I don't know if they kind of like found their conscience and were shamed as they should have been for running that in the first place. But some other headlines I'll share. Robin Urbach, a New Globe columnist, wrote, Canada has lost its voice on human rights in China. Uh, here's how Canada can show China that we mean business, November 28th. China wants Canada to shut up. That's exactly why we shouldn't. The editorial board published that editorial on December 1st. Beijing's harshness is forcing Canada to rethink its China delusions. That's December 2nd. So uh, it's almost like they're on a crusade now, like the editorial board, like the official position of the Globe and Mail is getting increasingly oppositional and increasingly damning of China, I think, to their credit. But there's all kinds of other stuff happening in context I haven't mentioned. Uh, Huawei and Meng and other things that many listeners will be familiar with. Have you been following this, Bashir? Uh, a little bit. I think it's a real it's a real challenge for Canada because of the business interests and because of the political ramifications we're the ones who are talking with Huawei about uh, 5G infrastructure. You know, America 
is taking a much firmer stand. And like, there's a lot of weird stuff specifically with the globe and Huawei. uh, Yeah, a couple of weird things I've noticed about the globe, like especially researching this article. The first thing is actually it was really hard to read the article because I hit a paywall. But the other thing too, I don't know if you just saw, but they have no columnists of color now on their actual uh, payroll. So I don't know. I think if they want to diversify coverage or I don't know, have better takes, I think they should also look at, at, at those problems too. Uh, this is true. And uh, Denise Balkasun, who was their only listed uh, columnist of color on their columnist page, uh, she just left the Globe and Mail. And we'll be discussing that that issue actually on Monday's Canada Land about uh, the lack of diversity in, in Canada's columns because there's some research that just came out about that. But I want to get a little bit more specific, uh, Bashir, about, about some of the weird stuff I'm talking about. And yeah. that includes like... From a reporting point of view, you know, Robert Fife and others have been doing a good job covering what happened with the detainment of Meng Wanzhou by Canada. And they gave us some insight into what happened, you know, like, did Canada fuck up in doing what they're supposed to do and detaining her? Should they have let her slip by? Did Trudeau know? It's a really interesting Globe report that reveals that, like, this may have been a fuck up on Trudeau's part uh, coming out of his cool relationship with Jody Wilson-Raybould back when she was attorney general, because she did give uh, the Privy Council office the uh, the heads up that they were going to be detaining Meng. And uh, apparently Trudeau only found out about it after the fact. He might have kind of let her slip through. You know, that report comes out. It is not any kind of a um, pro-Huawei report. It was a really informative report in the Globe. And then Huawei positions it as, as propaganda. Huawei retweets the Globe and Mail story and says... The detainment of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou is an unlawful and illegal act. Why? Read this insightful account of events to help you make up your mind. And there's nothing in the piece suggesting that uh, it was an unlawful and illegal act. And we're in this place now with journalism where, like, you can take a story that actually has an opposite meaning and say, this story means what I have to say. And, you know, be confident that a lot of people will take your word for it. And, you know, Robert Fife was not shy in shouting out Huawei when they further went on to publish like this poetic reflection from Meng, where she wrote to her supporters, your warmth is a beacon that lights my way and how the past year where she's been under house arrest in a mansion, uh, the past year has witnessed moments of fear, pain, disappointment, helplessness, torment and struggle. But her supporters give her hope, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And Fife says, as you endure hardship in your $5 million mansion, could you ask the Chinese state to turn off the 24-hour lights in the jail cells of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig? I don't, I don't know what to say about all this. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the Globe, meanwhile, has a responsibility to report the news. And that news includes the fact that Huawei is paying off the Trudeau government for their deference by moving a, a shit ton of Huawei jobs into Canada. You know, we're supposed to be all chilly with Huawei and China since that uh, detention. But I think more relevant, the U.S. has actually taken a firmer position in condemning the authorities in Hong Kong and and passing legislation asking for uh, a certain level of um, reporting on human rights abuses. Canada wouldn't sign on to that. And uh, Canada has, has, like, you know, Trudeau won't, won't say shit about what's happening in China. And again, there are Canadians detained in China. There's 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong who are affected by all of this. So th- this is really complicated stuff. But I wanted to bring up all of this, Bashir, because my thoughts on this are increasingly, as I read about just how atrocious what's happening in Xinjiang, I had that feeling of, like, this is the moment at which we can't say we didn't know. This is the moment when history will look back on every country and say, when you found out what was actually happening, 
what did you do? You can't pretend anymore not to know about really the atrocities that are being committed. And I don't claim to have any easy answers for what our what our relationship should be. Sure. But when, when you find out like concentration camps, rapist punishment, it feels like it's reached a point where you kind of have to figure out whether you have a spine and whether you have moral standards or not. I completely agree that Canada should be standing up, you know, for moral things internationally. I mean, speaking as a Muslim Canadian, when I see the stuff that's happening to those uh, people in those camps, you know, it's 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 very concerning, and I think we should stop, you know, uh, following business and corporate interests and 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 speak out about those things. I also think we should speak out about other things, like speak out against the coup in Bolivia. I think we need to speak out against arms deals to Saudi Arabia. I think we also need to look internally and and look at Saskatchewan, where ninety percent of the kids who are in prison are from indigenous backgrounds. I think we need to get our own moral house in order before we start condemning other places. But I think, I definitely think that we should, we should be condemning things like concentration camps, weapon sales, and all these other terrible things that happen in the world, and we shouldn't be bucking to corporate interests. Yeah, I think if you make it a standard that we gotta get our own moral house in order before we can criticize anyone else, then we're never gonna criticize anyone else. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure that like we can get to the point where there can be justice in Canada. But, you know, I, I think we can also do two, di- two different things at the same time. I think the saying is we can, we can walk while chewing gum. I agree with that. You know what? If people want to hear more about the policy side of this, um, there's a terrific interview on Oppo that uh, Jen and Justin had with a couple of, the, of key protesters who are protesting in Hong Kong. But I'm going to leave it there for now. Bashir, that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Everybody, you can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. Uh, we are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Bashir, where can people find you? Uh, at Bashir Mohammed, and you can also go on Facebook.com slash justice for Amel. Amel uh, is spelled E-double-M-E-double-L. Our website is canadalandshow.com, where you can find that aforementioned episode of Oppo. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you would like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us at patreon.com slash canadaland. Bashir, I want to talk about coverage of China in the Canadian press, and I want to zero in on the Globe and Mail's evolving coverage of China, kind of holistically, because there's all kinds of different ways that we cover China uh, as a business story, as a human rights story, as um, a political story. The context is large, but some of the specific context, of course, is that while the stories that I'm going to talk about uh, were published, of course, Canadians Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig uh, sit in jail, political prisoners, under 24-hour glaring lights. The conditions that they're held under, the interrogations, all of it uh, meets the UN's definition of torture. And, of course, while all of this is unfolding, China is cracking down on protesters in Hong Kong. There are mass arrests. At least a couple of people have been killed. 300,000 Canadians live in Hong Kong. A lot of them in the universities. The universities are under siege by the authorities, and the authorities are threatening to open fire in those universities. That is the context under which the Globe and Mail publishes the following editorial on November 12th. China's not changing, so we need to learn to get along. 
That was uh, something that they published by one Wendy Dobson, a professor emerita at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, in which uh, Wendy Dobson argues that um, in Confucian terms, Canada is small and of limited significance. It is we who must change and learn to live with China. Canadians have much to learn about China. I will say that uh, buried uh, towards the end of her piece, she says that, you know, when when necessary, we need to speak up about human rights abuses in China. But the piece basically is that we should know our place and China's never going to change. Twelve days after that was published, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists released the China Cables, documents that were leaked to them by an anonymous source, uh, which are operating manuals for, I think, what can only be described as a 21st century concentration camp in Xinjiang excuse my pronunciation, where hundreds of thousands of Muslim Uyghurs, some say over a million, are being held. And we know from former inmates uh, who report that while being held, they were tortured, beaten, uh, and punished with rape. And I'm not trying to condemn uh, the Globe and Mail as much as uh, I want to kind of reflect on how difficult it is proving in terms of figuring out a Canadian response to this. That one editorial that I highlighted is in the minority of the Globe's coverage. I don't know if it was in response to what we learned from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And I will point out the role of journalism in this. You know, investigative journalism is how we know about what happened, what is happening in these concentration camps. Journalism is how we know about what's happening in Hong Kong, where journalists can report. Tibet, there's all kinds of things we don't know about in China because we don't have journalism there. So, The Globe and Mail has found its voice since running that editorial. I don't know if they kind of like found their conscience and were shamed as they should have been for running that in the first place. But some other headlines I'll share. Robin Urbach, a New Globe columnist, wrote, Canada has lost its voice on human rights in China. Uh, Here's how Canada can show China that we mean business, November 28th. China wants Canada to shut up. That's exactly why we shouldn't. The editorial board published that editorial on December 1st. Beijing's harshness is forcing Canada to rethink its China delusions. That's December 2nd. So uh, it's almost like they're on a crusade now. Like the editorial board, like the official position of the Globe and Mail is getting increasingly oppositional and increasingly damning of China, I think, to their credit. But there's all kinds of other stuff happening in context I haven't mentioned. Uh, Huawei and Meng and other things that many listeners will be familiar with. Have you been following this, Bashir? Uh, a little bit. I think it's a real it's a real challenge for Canada because of the business interests and because of the political ramifications. We're the ones who are talking with Huawei about uh, 5G infrastructure. You know, America is taking a much firmer stand. And like, there's a lot of weird stuff specifically with the globe and Huawei. Uh, the, yeah, the- a couple of weird things I've noticed about the globe, like especially researching this article. The first thing is actually it was really hard to read the article because I hit a paywall. But the other thing too, I don't know if you just saw, but they have no columnists of color now on their actual uh, payroll. So I don't know. I think if they want to diversify coverage or I don't know, have better takes, I think they should also look at, at, at those problems too. Uh, this is true. And uh, Denise Balkasun, who was their only listed uh, columnist of color on their columnist page, uh, she just left the Globe and Mail. And we'll be discussing that that issue actually on Monday's Canada Land about uh, the lack of diversity in, in Canada's columns because there's some research that just came out about that. But I want to get a little bit more specific, uh, Bashir, about, about some of the weird stuff I'm talking about. And yeah. that includes like from a reporting point of view, you know, Robert Fife and others have been doing a good job covering what happened with the, the detainment 
of Meng Wanzhou by Canada. And they gave us some insight into what happened. You know, like, did Canada fuck up in doing what they're supposed to do and detaining her? Should they have let her slip by? Did Trudeau know? It's a really interesting Globe report that reveals that, like, this may have been a fuck up on Trudeau's part uh, coming out of his cool relationship with Jody Wilson-Raybould back when she was attorney general, because she did give uh, the Privy Council office the uh, the heads up that they were going to be detaining Meng. And uh, apparently Trudeau only found out about it after the fact. He might have kind of let her slip through. You know, that report comes out. It is not any kind of a um, pro Huawei report. It was a really informative report in the Globe. And then Huawei positions it as, as propaganda. Huawei retweets the Globe and Mail story and says... The detainment of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou is an unlawful and illegal act. Why? Read this insightful account of events to help you make up your mind. And there's nothing in the piece suggesting that uh, it was an unlawful and illegal act. And we're in this place now with journalism where, like, you can take a story that actually has an opposite meaning and say, this story means what I have to say. And, you know, be confident that a lot of people will take your word for it. And, you know, Robert Fife was not shy in shouting out Huawei when they further went on to publish like this poetic reflection from Meng, where she wrote to her supporters, your warmth is a beacon that lights my way and how the past year where she's been under house arrest in a mansion, uh, the past year has witnessed moments of fear, pain, disappointment, helplessness, torment and struggle. But her supporters give her hope, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And Fife says, as you endure hardship in your $5 million mansion, could you ask the Chinese state to turn off the 24-hour lights in the jail cells of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig? I don't, I don't know what to say about all this. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the Globe, meanwhile, has a responsibility to report the news. And that news includes the fact that Huawei is paying off the Trudeau government for their deference by moving a, a shit ton of Huawei jobs into Canada. You know, we're supposed to be all chilly with Huawei and China since that uh, detention. But I think more relevant, the U.S. has actually taken a firmer position in condemning the authorities in Hong Kong and, uh, and passing legislation asking for uh, a certain level of um, reporting on human rights abuses. Canada wouldn't sign on to that. And uh, Canada has, has, like, you know, Trudeau won't, won't say shit about what's happening in China. And again, there are Canadians detained in China. There's 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong who are affected by all of this. So th this is really complicated stuff. But I wanted to bring up all of this, Bashir, because my thoughts on this are increasingly, as I read about just how atrocious what's happening in Xinjiang, I had that feeling of like, this is the moment at which we can't say we didn't know. This is the moment when history will look back on every country and say, when you found out what was actually happening, what did you do? You can't pretend anymore not to know about really the atrocities that are being committed. And I don't claim to have any easy answers for what our, what our relationship should be. Sure. But when, when you find out like concentration camps, rapist punishment, it feels like it's reached a point where you kind of have to figure out whether you have a spine and whether you have moral standards or not. I completely agree that Canada should be standing up, you know, for moral things internationally. I mean, speaking as a Muslim Canadian, when I see the stuff that's happening to those uh, people in those camps, you know, it's, 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 it's very concerning. And I think we should stop, you know, uh, following business and corporate interests and, and, and speak out about those things. I also think we should speak out about other things, like speak out against the coup in Bolivia. I think we need to speak out against arms deal to Saudi Arabia. I think we also need to look internally and, and look at Saskatchewan, where 90% of the kids who are in prison are from indigenous backgrounds. I think we need to get our own moral house in order 
before we start condemning other places. But I think, I definitely think that we should, we should be condemning things like concentration camps, weapon sales, and all these other terrible things that happen in the world. And we shouldn't be bucking to corporate interests. Yeah, I think if you make it a standard that we got to get our own moral house in order before we can criticize anyone else, then we're never going to criticize anyone else. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure that like we can get to the point where there can be justice in Canada. But, you know, I, I think we can also do two, di- two different things at the same time. I think the saying is we can we can walk while chewing gum. I agree with that. You know what? If people want to hear more about the policy side of this, um, there's a terrific interview on Oppo that uh, Jen and Justin had with a couple of the of key protesters who are protesting in Hong Kong. But I'm going to leave it there for now. Bashir, that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Everybody you can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. Uh, we are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Bashir, where can people find you? Uh, at Bashir Mohammed, and you can also go on Facebook.com slash justice for ML. ML is spelled E-double-M-E-double-L. Our website is canadalandshow.com, where you can find that aforementioned episode of Oppo. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you would like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us at patreon.com slash canadaland. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.